So my name is Casey, and um, I'm so grateful to be together with you. And if you're new in the room, um, we're so grateful to share this time together with you. And if you're with us online, uh, and if you're new with us online, we are so grateful that we get to share this time together with you. And speaking of those that are new with us, um, we have a gift for you, and we'd love to give you that gift after service. If you're in the room, there's, um, at the, uh, there's a welcome table in the back of the room. And at the end of the service, if you'll take a moment, go visit the host at the welcome table. They'd love to give you a gift for being with us today. And if you think about it, there's a Connect card in the seat back of the chair in front of you. Fill that out and just give that to them. Uh, they, we would love to have a record of you being with us today. And if you're online... Uh, we'd love, and you're new with us, we'd love to give you a gift and uh, for sh- allowing us to share this time together with you. You can fill out the Connect card they're posting right now in the chat on Church Online platform, or if you're on social media, they're posting that there. Uh, hey, Westside, let's let everyone that's online, as well as those that are new in the room, let them know how grateful we are to share this moment with them, will you? Yeah. Now, there are many people around you and around me who have a distorted idea of God. They have a distorted view of God. See, and a distorted idea will leave people uh, feeling something. For some, it'll leave them feeling lost in a world that is constantly changing. For others, uh, a distorted view of God will leave them confused in a world that they just can't comprehend. A distorted understanding of God can leave you feeling um, shame and lost in the shame of something or the pile of some things that plague your past or the things that you've done. A distorted view of God can leave someone feeling lost and trying to medicate the pain or trying to fix the pain of what has happened to them or what's been done to them, wrongfully done to them by others. See, there are many people who don't know who God is like, what God is like, and who God likes. They think they know. They have a view, but it's a distorted view of who God is. They have a view of what God is like, but it's a distorted view. And they think they know who God likes, but it's a very distorted view. View. And because of this distorted view or this, the, the, the way that they see God, it, it, which, is, it, it's, it, which is based on what they've seen, which is based on the things they've experienced, it's based on the things that they've heard or things that have been shared with them or even the things that they've read, they don't think that God likes them or much less cares to even love them. Now, if you know someone like that, or if you're here and you are someone like that, I want you to hold on to that, because we're going to talk about that here in a minute. We've been in this series called God's Mission Has a Church, and in this, we've been looking at a series big idea, and this has been the series big idea that we've been looking at. The church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. 
It's been a play on what we kind of naturally think. I mean, we naturally think that, that we have purpose. I mean, we, we grow in a culture that, man, it's all about finding your mission. It's about finding your purpose. We as a church, we state that we have a mission. It's loving Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and sharing Jesus. And, and in a way, we talk about this all the time, that we wanted to flip the script on this because we believe God flipped the script on this thousands of years ago. See, we can think that we, the people of God, have a mission, but the, it's really the other way around. God's mission has a people. And God's mission has you. And because he has you, there is a purpose that you have that is more than you. It's something that he owns. See, God, over the last several weeks, we've learned this, that God has been on a mission to reverse the curse of sin by restoring his image in a humanity who has had a broken image that has been broken by sin. We were all born in the image of God, and that was broken by sin. And the reverse of the curse of this sin, the reverse of this curse, which is this broken image of God, is received through a blessing that Jesus brings to all who trust in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his life-giving resurrection. And then Jesus, what he would do, he would start a gathering a people, and we call this gathering together. This would be a new humanity that we call the family of God who have received his life. There would be a new creation, and he calls them the church. It's no, see, Jesus doesn't come, he didn't come to this world to build buildings. He didn't come here to do any of that. He came here to gather a people. See, the church is the kingdom family of God who carries out Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost. That's the church. It's the kingdom of God, family of God who carries out Jesus' mission because this was his mission, to seek and to save the lost, of which every one of us at one time were. See, the church, you and I, who have put our trust in Jesus, are called into God's missions, mission, like we talked about last week, to be ambassadors on Christ's behalf, to be ambassadors for Christ, to demonstrate something, to demonstrate to those who are close to us but far from God, who are close to us but are confused in their view of who God is like, what God is like, and who God likes. See, the truth about who God is like, what God is like, and who God likes is the good news, this gospel that we have the ability to be saved by and now to help proclaim to the world around us. See, this is what we announce to those who are confused in their view about God. See, to know Jesus is to know God. It's not just to know God, it's to know what he's like. It's to know who he is and who he likes. And when you know Jesus, it's good news because knowing the gospel is that power. That is the good news. And that gospel is this. See, the gospel is that God does not count the sins against those who receive Jesus as Savior and follow him as Lord. Isn't that amazing? That God doesn't count your sins against you 
When you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and you follow him as your Lord. Jesus started a church, a gathering of God's family, and he calls us to carry out his mission to live out this gospel, to live this out, to boldly live this out. So those who are close to us but far from God can know the good news that God does not count the sins against those who place their trust in Jesus. See, to be included in God's family is to be called into mission. To be included in God's family is to be called into God's mission. We cannot receive salvation and sit on the sidelines. You cannot receive salvation and just stand by. See, to do that is to say that, Jesus, you're my Savior, but you will not be my Lord. The teaching big idea today I want to give you is a challenge. It's a bold challenge. It's a challenge for the church. And so if you're a believer, you've received salvation, today is a challenge for you. And if you would say, man, I'm confused in my view about God, today is an invitation to you. It's an invitation that I hope that you see today. I hope you see God in a new light, in a new way. And here's the teaching big idea that I want you to be challenged by or be invited into. To receive salvation is to be called into Jesus' mission. To receive salvation is to be called into Jesus' mission. We are saved to go. We are not saved to be safe and secluded. We are saved to live a life that follows Jesus. We, the church, the family of God, the gathering, the kingdom gathering of God are called together on mission. I cannot separate. You cannot separate this. See, we cannot separate receiving salvation from the call to go and make disciples. When Jesus would say this at the end, right before he lived, that therefore, therefore all authority on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. This is not something that is selective. This is something that is commanded. And the moment we separate one from the other, the moment we separate receiving salvation from the call to go and make disciples, we abandon Jesus' mission and we stop living as if he's our Lord. Now I want to read to you an encounter. Those are, that's a bold statement, I know. But I want to read to you an encounter that is a challenge for us as Christ followers. And it's an invitation for those who are not. And in this encounter, um, it, we get a clear picture, and you're going to get see a clear picture of who God is, what God is like, and who God likes. It happens in John chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles or you want to turn there on your phones, we're going to have it up on the screens, but I want you to follow along with us today. The, and I want to set up a little bit of the backstory here so you understand the tension. There's a lot of tension going on. There's some religious tension, there's some racial tension, and the racial tension is between a group, a nation of uh, Samaria and a different people group called the Jews. The Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. The Samaritans did not like the Jews, and in this, the Samaritans also knew that the Jews didn't like them. And this would date back to right before 700 BC when King Omri, he would name Samaria as the new capital of the northern kingdom. In this time, God would exile all of Israel because they had turned their back on God. He would push them under the reign of the, the emperors of, of several different countries, and now they're under the Babylonian ranking and under their oppressive authority. And, and God would then 
allowed the nation of Israel to come back to the land that they had where they had this new, this, this place. And when they returned, the Samaritans had intermarried with the other countries. And it wasn't that the intermarriage was bad, it was what they did with the intermarriage. They brought back all these pagan religious practices to include in their current Hebrew religious practices. The ones that God, the only God, the true God, the God of the Bible that we read about, that Jesus represents, that led them to do. And so they bring all this pagan worship back in and, and they adopt all this pagan worship and include it into their lifestyle. And in that, they make a new temple on a different mountain than what they had before with King Solomon. See, the Samaritans worshiped at a new temple and abandoned the worship, that t- the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. So the, needless to say, Jews did not like Samaritans because of this. And the Samaritans knew it. And so Jesus had to go through Samaria. John tells us. And because of the long trip by foot in the desert, Jesus being fully man, yet fully God, he sits down tired and thirsty at an ancient well, a well that was in the land of Jacob. And and the grandson, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. Now, I just want to connect some dots real quick. This is the same Abraham that we talked about a couple weeks ago that God said, I will bless you and I will bless all nations through you. This is the reverse of the curse of sin, is the blessing that we receive through Jesus. And here, that same Abraham, who God said, I'm gonna bless all nations through you. It's his grandson's well that Jesus is sitting on. Do you capture the moment here? Jacob would become the nation of Israel, the family line who Jesus would miraculously be born into. And here Jesus, God incarnate, fully God yet fully human, sits tired from his journey. And we read it was about noon. No one would be at the well at this time of day because they would have either gone to the well that morning to take back anything to prepare for business or for their day at their house. And so he would be all alone. But Jesus was on a mission. And it was God's mission because that's why he was here. A mission to reverse the curse of sin. A mission to bring the blessing for the world, showing the world who God is, what God is like, and who God likes. We pick up in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, you just need to understand some of the tension here. See, nowadays, we don't have this as, as much as it was then. In that day and age, Samaria, Samaritans were disliked. But you know who was even more discredited in that culture? Women. Women were very devalued. And Jesus makes a point to let you know who God is, what God is like, and who God likes in a very powerful way. And he does it not just with the people that are disliked. He does this with a gender who is very disliked. When a woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Jesus puts him in a position to be served by this woman even. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And here John parenthetically says that what we just talked about, that the Jews don't associate with the Samaritans. And in verse 10, Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. I mean, talk about getting down to brass tacks fast. 
If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who God was like, if you knew what God was like and that he wanted to give you a gift, you would know who God likes because you would know he's offering you this gift. Because you would know then that I would give you living water. See here, Jesus claims that he is God who gives the gift of life. Jesus gives you and I the perfect picture of who God is like, what God is like, and who God likes, and what God does to those he likes. He claims that he is God who gives the gift of life. There was a debate in this time, and one of the religious debates was about baptism and who could baptize, and it was about purification. And Jesus in this moment settles a claim. He says that he alone is the purifying water, the life-giving water who can purify all things, all who receive him. He's that purifying, life-giving water. He is the God who gives life. He is, but the Samaritan woman at this time, she wasn't expecting God because of her distorted view. The Samaritan wasn't expecting God because she had a different view of what God was like, who God was like, especially who God liked. And she doesn't understand what Jesus is saying yet. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She doesn't get it. Where can you get this life-giving water that you claim to have? You may be crazy. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well to drink from himself as also his sons and all his livestock? And I can't imagine if, but Jesus sitting right here, this question likely echoed in his heart. I bet this echoed in his ears. Are you greater? Oh yeah, ma'am, he is so much greater. And he answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, now metaphorically speaking, he's at Jacob's well, which can only meet a physical thirst. And he recognizes you drink this water, it's going gonna, it's gonna to meet a physical need that you're going to resurface again. It's going to continue to resurface. But I can give you something that is an endless supply to satisfy your spiritual longings. I mean, I want you to catch this. She came for something spiritual, and Jesus was offering her something that would satisfy her deepest longings and never thirst again. See, what Jesus gives is a well that comes up within us and it becomes eternal life to us. It's so life-giving. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water, which I would be like that too. I want that water. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Still not getting it. 
Now, John, just stop right here. John, just to give it a little parenthetical, the, who's the author writing the story down, begins the account of this story of Jesus in this gospel account that he gives. And he begins his account with, a, with the story about John the Baptist and meeting Jesus. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he makes this grand announcement that he opens up his book with, that here is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the purifying lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so he can give life to the world, is right in front of the lady, and she has no clue. She has no clue. But, and Jesus does something here so he can give her life because that's what he wants to do. And Jesus does something that is challenging to us. It's challenging to our culture. We don't like this part. Jesus confronts her in what is keeping her. Jesus confronts her in what is keeping her from receiving this life-giving water. And he told her in verse 16, Go, call your husband, and then return. Okay, well, uh, maybe she's quick on her feet. Maybe she had to think about this. Maybe she had a, she in this moment had to recognize something. He knew something. And in this moment, she maybe thought, maybe she just said something she naturally said because this was a common thing that would be said to her. I have no husband. See, she answers in a way to cover up what she wanted to hide by coming to the well at the time of day she came. Because at that time of day, nobody would be there to confront her. Nobody would be there to challenge us. Nobody would be there to confront her past, her things that she's done, the mistakes she's made. She, she answers in a way to cover up what she wanted to hide. And, and often, I mean, let me just get real with you and I right now. Don't we do this? Don't we try to cover up and hide what, don't we often do that? Don't we cover up in what we want to hide from others? And while her answer was true, she had no husband, it wasn't what Jesus wanted her or needed her to confess so he could give her what she desired. Jesus calls out her sin by asking this question. He confronts her with truth about who she is, a sinner, And here's the reality. We will never truly understand on this side of heaven who God is, what God is like, or who God likes until we understand that each and every one of us are sinners and we can confess that sin to him. So you'll never understand who God is, truly is, what he's truly like. And you'll truly not understand how much he loves you until you can come to the place that you can confess this to him. See, Jesus gives you life when you confess your sins, trusting that God doesn't count your sins against you. That's the power of confession. It takes a deep faith to confess your sins because in your confession of sin, there's this deep trust that there is a God. I know who God is like. I know what God is like. And I know who God loves. He loves me. 
He doesn't count my sins against me because my faith is in Christ. No one can receive salvation until they come face to face that they are sinners and they come face to face with their sin and they confess it. See, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And when we confess our sins, it is this act of faith. Confession is an act of trusting that God doesn't count your sin against you because you trust in Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his life-giving resurrection. Therefore, what have you to lose? The author of John would also say this in his opening remarks that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is how Jesus came to you and I. See, Jesus is full of grace and truth. It is in his grace that he confronts you and I with truth. This is the power of truth because it's filled with grace. There's just a measure of grace. It's even, and it's a full measure of truth and a full measure of grace. God's grace means that we must be confronted with truth. That's what Jesus does. And he said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, "Um, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And you were like, where, where did that come from? See, in this moment, maybe she's trying to like, take the, the pressure off or distract the conversation and, and redirect the conversation that just got awkward really fast. And she does this by almost making a political uh, argument here. And in this, uh, or she may be sincerely curious about this because this has been a deep question of hers. Who knows? And see, our people say the mountain, like where people worship is on Mount Gerizim. And say, your people say, the Jews say that it's on, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And Jesus replies, woman, and just for the record, uh, only Jesus probably has permission to call any lady like this woman. Just let's settle that right now. Believe me. Trust me. There's some of you listening today. You have been avoiding trusting God. And by avoiding trusting him, you're avoiding what you need so badly. Trust me. Believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So, I mean, it's like, it's not just, it's coming. And he goes, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, a.k.a. I am the seed of Abraham. <laughs> Yet a time is coming, and I can just feel the anticipation boiling up in Jesus. And now has come, has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. See, worship is no longer, and it's not about a place or a style. See, we make worship about temples and locations, about buildings and steeples, but it's none of that. 
We make worship about styles and preferences, choruses and hymns, but it's none of that. That's not worship. Worship is having the spirit of God living in me and living out God's truth. This is worship. True worshipers have the Holy Spirit in them. True worshipers is not coming to a building. True worshipers is recognizing that my body, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. This is true worship. True worship is seeing you as the holy temple of God. True worshipers see that God is alive, that, that we have communion with the God who is alive and always present with us. True worshipers are the true temple where God, he abides and where heaven now meets earth. And when the Holy Spirit is alive in you, you will live out God's truth. See, when the Holy Spirit is alive in you, you will live out God's truth. See, true worship is living out God's truth. It is living as if God is alive in you. Can I ask a question? Do your, does your lifestyle, do your choices, do your habits, do your words, do your thoughts, do they reflect that a holy God lives inside of you? This is true worship. Because true worship is not what or how you sing. It's more than that. It's how you live out God's truth. That he is alive inside of you. The woman said, I know the Messiah. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared. And it's not just, well, he just said softly. Declared is more emphatic, isn't it? Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Mic drop. More than that, mouth drop. Have you ever been talking to someone um, and you didn't realize they were famous until later after you talked to them. Have you ever had one of those moments? My wife has, and I have. Um, we were given uh, gifted uh, backstage passes. Now, some of you, I'm going to lose some street cred, and some of you, I'm going to gain street cred with this. Okay, you ready for this? We were given backstage passes to a Foo Fighters concert over 12 years ago. And um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, thank you. I don't know what that means, but thank you. Um, so in this, we were given these backstage passes, and a friend of ours was best friend or good friends with the backup drummer who was playing percussion on this tour. And the only thing we knew about Foo Fighters was a song called My Hero, and that's the only connection we had with the band. We knew that they didn't match our values, didn't really follow them, and things like that. So um, in all of this, we, just, we, we decided to go, we, why not meet the band? And so we are backstage, we're talking to a lot of people, and we don't know who's who, by the way, we just, we don't know. And um, so we're talking to people, and, and Cassie's talking with a guy, and, um, and, and, and she, she later would tell the story that she, was, she just thought he was a stagehand. And then he came, and um, he was sat down in the, on the couch in the room there with everybody, and he was, well, apparently one of the band members. <laughs> and uh, and they were the nicest people, just incredibly nice to us strangers who had just invaded their pre-concert routine. Um, and and all, they talked with us for about 15 minutes. It was incredible. And it wasn't until later that she realized and I realized 
And the man she was talking to was Dave Grohl, the lead singer of the Food Fighters and the drummer for the famous band Nirvana. Had no clue who we were talking to. It was like one of those mouth drop moments. I shook his hand. Now, in this moment, the Samaritan woman, she had no clue. No clue that the creator of all things who organized this world, put everything into existence, was sitting at her disposal. She could ask him for what she needed most. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? No, this was a holy moment. This was a very sacred moment. And those questions were not important, but I think what John says next is the value of what was important. Then leaving her jar, leaving her water jar. You know something? She had to leave her water jar. Leaving what symbolized what she thought she needed. Leaving what symbolized all the shame that she carried when she came to this well at this time of the day. Leaving her water jar for physical needs. But this deep longing is really what she needed. She left having that fulfilled in Christ. She came wanting water, but she left having her deepest longing fulfilled in Christ, no longer needing that water jar anymore. So leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man, come see a man, come see a man, come see a man, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I know you all know this, but he told me everything I ever did. I know I've been hiding this, but he told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She came to a well in shame on her own sin. She knew who she was, what she was like, and she knew that no one liked her. She knew what people said about her. She knew what people thought about her, but because she discovered who God was, what God was like, and who God likes more than that, she knows she knew who God loves. She no longer had shame in her sin. See, when you discover the source of what can truly satisfy you, when you discover the source that only God can give through Jesus and his work for you, when you discover this, you can leave everything else that will never fulfill you. You will leave everything else. And you will not be intimidated by what people think. You will not be intimidated by what has happened to you. And you will not carry the shame of the things that you have done. And she came broken in shame trying to hide her sins. But she left being a whole person made perfect in love, willing to tell the world what Jesus did in spite of her sins, that Jesus did not count her sins against her because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, when you know who God is, what God is like and who God likes, God does, and that God just doesn't like you, he loves you, then you will not see your sin and see your shame. You will realize God doesn't count your sins against you because you trust in him. You will be unashamed then to tell the world the truth of God's grace for you. See, when you are saved, you are called to go. 
She was afraid, and when she came to that well, she used to think it was not safe to confess her sin. That's why she was there at that time of the day, and she was not safe to confess who she was and what she did. But now she was saved, and she boldly left her water jar to go. And when she received salvation, she was commissioned to go. See, they came out of the town, we read, and made their way toward him. Why? Because she did something that was not safe. She did something that was bold. And the town knew because of her story that Jesus saved her. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus says. My food. No longer does he need a drink. No longer does he need food. Because he's, he knows What's fully satisfying is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, we need to learn what Jesus teaches, that life is more than food. Life is more than water. Life is more than your physical needs. Satisfaction and fulfillment comes from fulfilling God's will for your life, and that will is for you to believe in Christ. Jesus would say to him, the disciples, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest And I tell you, open your eyes and look. Open your eyes and look. Church, open your eyes and look. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and the harvest a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Hey, church, open your eyes. Open your eyes to your family. Open your eyes to your neighbors. Look at your neighbors. Look at your colleagues. Open your eyes to the, 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 the fields around you, to the people around you who are close to you but far from God, who are close to you, but they have a distorted view of who God is, what God is, and who God likes. Look at your colleagues. Look at your teammates. Look at your classmates, students. Open your eyes. See, you must open your eyes to see the harvest that Christ sacrificially worked for. He did all the work. All he's asking you to do is go. He did all the work. He's just asking you to go. The harvest is all around you. But do you see it? See, we must open our eyes and go because if we don't go, they won't know. If you don't go, they won't know. See, to receive salvation is to be called into Jesus' mission. We finish this up and say, many of the Samaritans from that town believed him. (laughs) Look at this. Many believed him because of the woman's testimony, because of her story of what Jesus did for her. He told me everything. He told me everything I ever did. So they went, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves, and we know that this really means, that this man really is the Savior of She boldly saw what Jesus saw. That people around her were just like her. And they needed what he freely gave her. See, others will become believers when you are a witness to what God has done in Christ for you. This is why the church is called to go. See, being called into mission, being saved is a call to mission. And this is the commission life that I want to encourage you. I'm going to give these to you real fast. 
And this is for you to think about because you're called to go. This is the commission life. Three words, be, live, tell. Be, live, tell. Be, we must be the gospel every day. You must allow the gospel to transform you every day. Today you're here and you may have never responded to the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done for you. You need to let that gospel transform you. And every day you need to let this gospel transform you, that you are not what you work for. You are not what you can do on your own. You are alone Christ, what he has done for you. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrecting life is what gives you life and nothing else. Let that transform you every morning that you wake up. Be the gospel. And then secondly, live the gospel. We must live the gospel. Church, what would it look like us for live the gospel in this way, that we will treat others the way God through Christ has treated us, that we will forgive others, not counting their sins against them because Christ in his perfect work, his death has not counted our sins against us, that we will love others, not counting their sins against them and not love them based on what they've done, but love them based on Christ's work and his love for them because we've opened our eyes to the fields. We're gonna treat others the way God through Christ has treated us, so we're gonna live this gospel out. What would it look like? Not just with our actions, because there's a testimony, a word that needs to be declared the gospel and we can live it out, but we gotta speak it out. We must tell the gospel. And I know that's bad English, but it must happen. Be, live, tell. We must tell the gospel. We will be a witness and speak about the good news that Jesus doesn't count the sins against those who trust in him. And our story is an open book and we carry no shame because we know that God doesn't count our sin against us. And it's in that confidence that I can tell you God won't count his, your sins against you. See, when I live the, my life in Jesus' truth, my words and my actions are a witness to this good news. Your words combined with your actions because you've let this transform you. You be the gospel every day. You live it out. You're not afraid to speak it out. And it will be the witness of the church. It'll be our witness, church. You need to understand this. This is why the call to salvation is a call to go. It will be your witness, our witness, that tells the world who God is like, what God is like, and who God likes. Will you boldly go? I'm gonna ask you to stay for a second. We're gonna sing together. And this is what I want you to do. If you receive salvation, you could say, I am called to go. I will be the gospel every day. I will live the gospel out and I will tell this gospel. I'll let my words meet my actions and let that match everything that Christ has done for me. I'm gonna ask you in a moment to stand up because we will boldly go, that we will boldly go every day and let the gospel transform us, that we will boldly live this out, treating others the way God through Christ has treated us. And we will boldly speak this life out and let our story be a witness of God's truth. Father, as we sing, may we receive the courage to boldly go in Jesus' name. We've only scratched.